Hey everyone, John Clare here. Welcome to episode 23 of the EvoFi podcast. How many of you out there have heard of the term FANG before? That's F-A-A-N-G. Well, for those of you who haven't, it's an acronym for a group of technology stocks, specifically Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. As many of you know, these stocks have posted impressive gains through the years. And not to get your hopes up, this will not be a podcast on picking the right stocks. In fact, I should mention that the research has shown that there's no reliable way to predict top-performing stocks in advance, rather providing a simple argument for diversification instead. Today is actually about how these big tech companies operate, specifically taking Google as an example, and how they've become such a dominating force in our world, what they do with all the data they collect, how they make money for their shareholders, and privacy implications for people like you and me. Our guest to talk about all this today is Salish Patel. Salish is the CEO of Scale for Good, a company that helps leverage technology tools that the big companies use across small mission-driven firms. Originally trained as an aeronautical engineer and followed by an MBA in finance from Columbia, Salish was one of the earliest employees of game giant Activision, where he started as a video game producer. Since then, Salish has amassed two decades of experience in production and business sides of marketing, advertising, entertainment, and e-commerce. Most recently, he was the Senior Vice President for Digital Analytics at Deutsch and Crispin, Porter Bogusky, and two other large U.S. ad agencies. Over his career, he's been responsible for driving business strategy, digital and data strategy for many household name companies like Volkswagen, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, American Express, Microsoft, Zillow, Uber, and the list goes on. This podcast actually is a big milestone in the EvoFi podcast world as well, marking the time first time two siblings have appeared on separate podcasts. Check out Brother Neil on episode 11. Representing the EvoFi team today is myself, Penny Lowbread, and Cecilia Fleming. If you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check us out on Twitter or Instagram at EvoFi Podcast. Or drop us a line at evofipodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, this podcast is 100% free of any tax, legal, or investment advice. Our goal here is education and a little fun. If you need advice in any of the areas mentioned, tailored to your specific circumstances, feel free to give us a call and we'll see how we can help. Now let's get to the podcast. Here is the Evofi team talking with Salish Patel. Enjoy. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the uh, the new venture you've got going on. Sure. Um, currently involved in this venture called Scale for Good, where we basically help mission-driven companies with all their digital marketing uh, challenges that they have, primarily around small and medium-sized businesses. I'd spent eight long years working at two large ad agencies, working on a lot of Fortune 50 accounts, selling everything from, you know, cars to pizzas to tacos and all those other things. And it, it and the work is fine, but it just is not very gratifying. Uh, and I sort of recognized that a small, a lot of small and medium sized companies, especially in the non-profit space, need the skills that we have or I have 
but they don't necessarily have access to those resources. And so we've been taking on clients uh, in, in this space and, you know, you're sort of helping everything from like veterans organizations to uh, organizations that are helping special needs children to all of those kinds of things. And what I realized is the non nonprofit world and mission driven companies have the same exact challenges as a for profit world, which is they're trying to, they're trying to capture people's attention. Uh, and they have to use a lot of the same tactics, even though, you know, their, their goals are honorable and, you know, they have a higher calling, they still have to, they still have to compete with the for-profit businesses in, in, in getting people's attention. And so it requires a lot of the same skills. So, uh, that's sort of where, where I'm at today. So I think it's definitely a, uh, uh, really noble mission in a way for those smaller organizations to get access to those tools that, uh, usually only the big boys have. So I think that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and also the tools have changed. It used to be when I started, a lot of these tools were these big mainframes and they cost, you know, millions or tens of millions of dollars. Now, a lot of those things are free and you all you really need to do is invest the time in how to use them. So there is, in effect, a way for small and medium-sized businesses to be able to use a lot of the tools available to them 15, 20 years ago. And so that's, I mean, a good segue into our topic for today, which is, you know, as you know, this is a quasi-finance podcast, um, but, you know, all the folks that, that listen, uh, or maybe not all that listen, but a lot of the folks we talk to, you know, they live, I like to affectionately call this living in a Google world, but, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's a, you know, data, see, pri- data privacy, uh, I just saw on the news today about medical data with Amazon being challenged in court, uh, it's how Amazon or Amazon and or Google make money off of us, how people can make money using Google. I think it's a very apropos tool for um, for this podcast, even though it may be a bit on the fringe. So we're lucky to have you here to talk about some of the stuff um, that here's on the agenda. Um, before we get into the meat of the podcast, though, as uh, you may know by now, uh, we need to run you through the Evo 5, right? So how are you feeling about that? Feel pretty good. Okay. And I, I did send them in advance, so hopefully that uh, that lessens the blow a little bit. Um, let's dive right into the Evo 5. First of all, number one, what question or what question, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, I always I wanted to be a commercial pilot. Uh, thought about it for a really long time and then decided against it, uh, though I regret it. I think it would have been a nice way to see the world, and aviation is still something I'm very interested in as a hobby. and. I'm the kind of guy that will uh, schedule a layover for like three hours just so I can hang out at that airport. So I'm just an airport and aviation geek. So that's that's never going to change. That's I would say that's probably pretty unique, huh? Yeah. To, to schedule a layover. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what is what are your favorite layover airports? Uh, well, Singapore. There's nothing like Singapore. Uh, it, it is it is its its own own world. But uh, I, I I lived in Boulder for a while, and Denver's great. There's a lot going on there it's just i'm just more interested in you know can i see all the international planes coming in from yeah. domestic bubble and vice versa and that kind of stuff sfo uh is is, is has been redone and is a really amazing uh, airport these days so and i have to say by the way i didn't mention this up front but you're dialing in from california whereabouts in california are you based uh, i'm in uh, i'm outside of la near orange county uh so sort of halfway to disneyland from downtown um, and do you actually, have you flown before recreationally? I know your brother uh, did some flying. He did. I never got a pilot's license, though I did do some glider flying lessons, which is a whole different world in itself. So, yeah. Wow, brave man. Gliders <laughs> are even, uh, that's a whole different uh, 
different level. But it, it's purity of flight. There's no engine. So literally, there's no sound as well when you're up there. So it really, literally feels like you're a bird. So Yeah. Uh, if you like that sort of thing. I like having a motor there to I've done it. help me. You've done it too? I've done it, yeah. It's actually really a really cool experience. Really? Yeah. Yeah. When have you been on a glider? I went up with my parents. You know, they're dare, Tom's a daredevil, and so he arranged for us to go up once. Wow. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. You were brave. Yeah. All right, Salish, what's your favorite word? Uh, well, I don't have a favorite word of all time, but I, I you know, a, a word that has become a favorite of mine recently is superpower. Uh, it's a word I've been using a lot in terms of my own internal messaging and other things, and it's it's, a, it's something that gives me inspiration. So. Can you use it in a sentence? <laughs> sure, I could say that you know, focus is my superpower because I feel like when I'm more focused, I tend to get things done better. Uh, so I think that's, uh, you know, I think, you know, we're all in our own heroic journeys in a way. And so we all have our own superpowers. We may not know what they are, but we, we certainly have them. So yours is focus. Yeah. Cecilia, what would be your superpower? (laughs) I have to ask, this is, this is, this is too, uh, too good. What I would want as a superpower is to be invisible. (laughs) (laughs) No offense taken there. I'm with Cece. Just today. (laughs) Just today. She wants the invisibility cloak, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Gotcha. Around. Nobody yeah. Knows who did That's it. right. Yeah, all right. Well, Make people wonder well, what's well going played. on. Well played. <laughs> what would you do differently if no one would judge you? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a road cyclist, big cyclist, uh, big fan of the whole sport. And uh, I think I would just go work in a bike shop for free. I just love hanging out at bike shops yeah. and just you know talking to everyone there and learning about the all the ins and outs. And if I had to go sell bikes for a living at, at retail, I would love to do that. I just, it just been that really inspires me. And so. you're pretty, uh, your background initially was engineering, right? So you've got, you're kind of mechanically inclined in that way too, right? You would think, uh, <laughs> though uh, I'm not great around the house. I mean, uh, but uh, you know, yeah, I can solve a math equation, but that doesn't always help when, you know, when uh, we need to go to the hardware store to figure something out. I usually, do what I think most people do is I just call my dad who lives like five minutes away and he loves, he loves doing that stuff. So that's, that's sort of my first, uh, my first option. Okay. So, so, but initially your undergrad is in aeronautical engineering, right? It is. It is. Yes. So what kind of engineering would that be if you're, you know, is that, is that really mechanically inclined, you know, kind of like, you know, air, is it aerodynamics or is it more mechanical, kind of like rocket and airplane stuff? Aerospace is a little bit of everything. So the, the, the all the electronics and the internal parts of the plane and the computers, that's really electrical engineering, computer science. Yeah. All the wind flow and everything around the airplane and all of that, that's aerodynamics. Then you have, you know, the engines, which are propulsion, which are mechanical. So uh, you aerospace is, is a little bit of everything. My specialty was more around mechanical and propulsion. Okay. Uh, but it all sort of depends on what you're into. And also, what kind of math you can take, because the math on the on all the uh, sort of aerodynamics and stuff is is really really hairy. So yeah. it all depends on what sort of what what, what level of pain you're suited for. So, okay. so that's where the math comes in handy. Well, the math and engineering is generally very very intense. Yeah. Uh, so it just all depends on what you're into. And, yeah what you're good at so but nowadays i will say engineering has changed it's so much done by the computers and yeah. things so you know a lot of the a lot of the heavy lifting in my day is now sort of done by done by the processor so. all right you're almost there greatest of all time who would be your oh. goat 
Well, I, I, I you know, I, I'm, I, when I thought of this, I thought the one person that comes to mind recently is Alex Honnold. I don't know if you've seen this documentary about him last year called Free Solo. It won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. He basically free climbed, which is not using any ropes or harnesses, El Capitan, uh, which, which is a famous clip out here in Yosemite. Uh, and it's, 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 it's an achievement that's so worthy in that a lot of the top elite climbers that are at his level wouldn't even consider doing. It. Wow. So it's not like doing, you know, you know, the sub three minute mile, which, which was done recently. This is something that, you know, most people that are that skilled wouldn't even think about doing. And he's just on his own world. And what, what I admire about him is obviously not only his focus and his ability to, to do something like this, but he seems to lead a pretty balanced life. You know, he has a house in Las Vegas. He, he does he did his rock climbing 30 hours a week. He has a foundation. You know, he does things all around the world to help, you know, to help the less fortunate. So I'm like, you know, there's a lot there. He's just not one of these folks who just, you know, this, this single task just dominates his entire life. Wow. That's pretty amazing, though. I, that seems a bit crazy, too. But it was difficult to watch because it was difficult, it was yeah, difficult you, to watch. It, you thought, you know, there's there's a moment where, you know, even the crew thought that, he, you know, like a 50-50 chance of like surviving. And there's this very harrowing part of the, the movie where they're all like, well, if he falls, then we all we can do is call 911, you know, kind of thing. And so they have to talk through that, you know, so. Well, that was a good answer. <laughs> um, I would say that's probably a goat uh, if I've ever heard of one, too. So, all right. So, Salish, how are you with music? Uh, I'm okay with music that I know, yeah. uh, but my kids call it all very, very old and classic. So I don't know if anything from the, you know, anything in the last 10 years, I'm probably terrible at. Okay. So. What's your, what's your wheelhouse if you had to name it? So something not in the last 10 years, but kind of, how would you uh, define classic? Well, I, I, I would do to RM, those kinds of bands. So are, are you taking requests there, John? No, no. Just trying to see how far off we're going to be with this selection. <laughs> I, I think, uh, I think you're going to know this one. Um, okay. I've just so you know, we'll play a couple seconds. Now it's in the theme of the podcast. We'll see if you can get the connection. I shouldn't be hard. I did pick an obscure verse because if, if I played the chorus, it would be I'd give it away. So here we go. We'll give it a shot. Everybody else, no guessing. I'm not a robot without emotions. I'm not what you see. I've come to help you with your problems. I, I don't think I know it. It sounds familiar, but I, I, I don't know it. So, uh, Penny's, Penny's dying to answer it. But if you listen to the lyrics, it's all about, I've, I'm a robot, I'm here to help you with your problems. And I thought that was actually a great segue into this podcast. So, Cecilia, I'm going to ask you first. I'm going to make Penny wait. Any idea? Um, it sounded like Mr. Roboto. Oh. It is. Is it stick? It's stick. Fleming. Yep. Awesome. Well done. That's pretty great, nice actually. Hey, Salish, so, awesome. you ever heard of uh, Sticks? Dennis DeYoung? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard of Sticks. Uh, that's not, not the song I remember from them, but yeah, I've heard of Sticks. It's, it's a so. deep cut, anyhow. It's, it's S-T-Y-X, so it that's is. how it's spelled. It yes. Uh, <laughs> I've been singing that song all day, but I didn't want to give it away to anybody here. You didn't hear me singing it, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. Okay, cool. My mom listens to that song. Oh, does she like it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason I know it. Nice. Well, tell her it's on our playlist now. All right. Enough fun. Let's get into business. So, Salish, uh, we kind of teed up up front your experience. I'd like to get into 
you know, kind of how Google works and a lot of that stuff. And I want to talk about this thing called Fang. Sure. I, you know, I, I did get a, a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering, worked for a couple of years, then did what everyone did at the time was I got my MBA in finance and economics. Uh, and I decided I didn't want to be an investment banker or consultant, which was where all my classmates were headed uh, at Columbia at the time. And so I went into uh, what I was really interested in, which was the video game business. Uh, so I became a video game producer at Activision when it was a small little company that came out of bankruptcy. And I was, you know, employee number 62, I believe. Uh, and it made video games and I was a video game producer. Uh, and that was really an interesting perch to be at because video games, even today, is still sort of the edge of technological innovation in terms of you know how all the images they serve the worlds that they create all of that kind of stuff so if you're involved in the video game business you really are at the cutting edge of like using computing power at its at its maximum you know graphics all of that kind of stuff i did that for a while went over to disney corporate uh worked in their various new media groups uh you know in, in video games and other places and i sort of saw the internet coming uh, in that, you know, Disney was at the time looking at various internet companies to buy and it didn't make a lot of sense because they weren't big enough and they didn't sort of meet the corporate criteria of what, you know, a big company like that needs from an acquisition. Uh, and eventually started a consulting business, uh, working working with sort of movie studios and ad agencies and eventually wound up uh, uh, working at two large ad agencies, which were my last two jobs where I led the digital analytics team. So basically my sort of background in quantitative and entertainment and all of those kinds of things led to sort of leading these digital analytics teams. And digital analytics is where uh, all the data that's being generated by all the behaviors online, whether, you know, what you're doing on your phones, what you're doing on your websites, all of that data is out there and it's being tracked. Uh, and, and a lot of folks in advertising, marketing, and even at the brands themselves are using that data to sort of you know, generate more effective ads, create better products, create better experiences. So uh, that's sort of what led me to, to where I am today. So I'm a geek at heart. I love numbers. Uh, the numbers are art in, in my mind. <laughs> so uh, that's that's where I sort of start. And I've always liked mysteries. I, I'm still an avid reader of mysteries and the movies that I like and all that kind of stuff. And so to me, a lot of the data challenges I work on are just numerical mysteries. But that's what sort of energizes me in terms of doing the kind of work that I'm doing. So so as a good segue, speaking of mysteries, so some of our listeners may not have heard of the acronym FANG. So explain explain to our listeners what FANG means and then kind of what is it, what kind of what's the mystery behind, you know, the business we think of Google at the time it started off. Well it's a search engine, but at the end of the day it's really not. So what are, kind of let's pull back the you know the curtain a little bit on some of these. But first explain what FANG is and why they're kind of collectively referred to as that and why they might be important. So FANG is something I believe James Kramer came up with a while ago. And he, Kramer? Yeah, I think it was Kramer, or at least he claims it. Uh, but, you know, it, it basically these companies that dominate their space had high growth and you couldn't really value them in the traditional metrics that Wall Street looks at because their growth rates are so high, but they keep meeting those growth expectations quarter over quarter, year over year. And, you know, it used to be uh, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, uh, and Google. Uh, and now that Google has technically changed their name to Alphabet, you know, it's, it's still Fan or Fang. Uh, but what's interesting, and so basically, if you think about it, they're like an ETF of these companies. 
that just dominate their space uh, in, a, in a lot of different ways. And so what's interesting to, to me about sort of, and, and a lot of people have made a lot of money putting, you know, their, their, their stock investments into, into these fan companies. And I believe Warren Buffett is now the largest shareholder of Apple and he's done quite well. And if you, if you look at all of Warren Buffett's, you know, statements from 10 or 15 years ago, where he's like, I don't really get high technology. I don't invest in things I don't get. Well, all of a sudden he sort of understood Apple pretty well and he's done really well, you know, in the last five or 10 years doing that. So, uh, but at the same time, and I think this goes into our conversation around Google, it's like, these, these companies dominate their space in such a way that it's hard for one, the average consumer to understand, but two, for regulators to sort of level the playing field in any way because they grow so quick and they dominate their field to where there is no competition for them. And that's why investors like them because you can continue to raise prices and you have market power, but it may not be the overall good thing for the average citizen or the average consumer. So. So talk to us a little bit about kind of the, the basics of, of, of Google. We can maybe go down that tangent first because I know we wanted to get, get into that. Um, so kind of what's Google 101 for, for the average person? What should they know about it other than kind of you know, being a search engine? Well, I think, I think the thing about Google is it's, it's everywhere. Uh, you, may know it as, you may know it as, you know, your search engine, and that's fine. Uh, and that is how it makes its money, and that is how it's developed this basically monopoly position in search, where it has 70% market share, and it principally still makes most of its money there. But it has branched off into all of these other things that you may or may not be aware of. Like, it gives you free Google Mail. Everyone probably has free Gmail accounts, and that's great. But guess what? It's, it's selling ads again on your Gmail account, right? Uh, Google Maps. Uh, highly convenient, amazing, you know, get you where you want to go, get to on time, or at least you know how late you're going to be. But, you know, it's tracking all that information. And so Google's whole idea is, and, and, and they're now their proposition to, to the general public is, we need to be everywhere so we can help you, you know. But what, we're, what they're really trying to say is we need to be everywhere so we can monetize <laughs> kind of thing. And so, and then, you know, last week they announced that they're going to buy Fitbit, which has all kinds of implications in yet another, another business that they're going into. So their, their whole thing has gone from like, we want to help you circumnavigate the internet, which is what a search engine does, to now we want to help you. And because we're helping you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't mind that you're, you're handing over all your data to us. So you say the word monetize, and I suspect that most of the folks listening know what that means. But in terms of their business model, how, how do they – and monetize is to turn something into money or profit. How, how, does, how does Google make money off of that stuff that they give us and the data that they collect at a very high level? Well, let's take it from the search engine perspective. So when you, when you, type, in a, when you type in a search, obviously you're going to get what are known as organic rankings, which are rankings that didn't pay to be there which are, are the, the closest, you know, rankings. Like if I, if I typed in dog training, it would probably, you know, set, bring up some dog training schools near where I live and all that kind of stuff uh, as organic rankings. But there's all these uh, companies that pay to be on top of those organic rankings. And so those are, those are the, you know, rankings on top and on the bottom. And so how Google makes money from you is the more they know about you, the more that information can be fed to potential advertisers. And if the potential advertisers know more about you, uh, like let's say the you know we can pass in the dog training example, 
uh, pass along that I have two dogs that, you know, I make $80,000 a year, all those kinds of things. The more that information that advertisers have, the more money that they're willing to pay to Google to get that advertisement in front of me. It's very different than what television used to be where, you know, you people would watch a commercial, but, you know, the advertiser didn't know much about that, uh, that audience. It knew them at a very high level. It may have known their income level by household. It may have known by how many people are in that household, but it didn't know all their hobbies. It didn't know which restaurants they go to. It didn't know a lot of things that Google could now provide, uh, which, which makes that audience very valuable to, to the advertiser. So much more targeted um, marketing can be done to individual people or groups. And the question that, uh, you know, I think most people might be asking was, was how much, I mean, I'm a casual web browser. I mean, how much do they really know about me? And, and how is Google able to use that to, to sell things to me? I think, as we've talked about in the past, people might be surprised about uh, how much Google actually does know about each and every Well, it, it's it's... It's, they know a lot more than you would think. Now there there are rules in place to you know have what's no not to transmit what's known as personally identifiable information, or, you know social security numbers and phone numbers and emails and all that kind of stuff. But even if you don't have all that information, you can know a lot about a person. Uh, like John, the bands you and I are going to look for that we're going to go see in concert on a on a Google search are going to be different than Cecilia's bands that she's going to look for. So instantly, Google has an idea of the, the age range of the person, you know, just by the kinds of interests that they have. You know, if she's going to all the cool clubs in Richmond and you and I are home on a Sunday night, you know, they have a very good idea of how old she is, you know, the kind of, you know, the kinds of things she's into. And they can get, you know, they can uh, just by your Google searches, you know, at least get gender, you know, get an age range, you know, even get, you know, it, if, if she's eating out twice, twice or three times a week at restaurants, you know, that leads to disposable income. So there's a lot of things that they can understand, not just from Google search, but from Google Maps and all the other things that they have. So is there kind of like a virtual profile of each of us at Google where, you know, there's this kind of image that, you know, we all have that they then can... Uh, how would I think about... I mean, I, I think I understand what you're saying, but how, how would I think about that maybe differently? Yeah, I don't know if they, I mean, I don't know what's in, in depth at Google and I'm sure, you know, it's, it's they don't even want to tell folks what, what's, <laughs> right. what they have, but, you know, they always say, look, we, we, you know, you, you know, me as an advertiser, you know, if I want something, if I want 25 or 34 year old females uh, who visit, who visit pet stores once a month, uh, they can get me that person. Now, I don't know who they are specifically, you know, or, you know, in the Richmond area, they can get me that person as well. So they're always like, look, we can get you these buckets in the way you want them. We're never going to tell you who specifically they are, but they can, you know, so basically, yes, they must have a master profile of you somewhere. But what they're doing is going in and saying, okay, is this master profile, can I, can I loop them into this bucket and sell that to an advertiser? And so, I mean, I think there's probably some benefits to, to us as users, right? Because the more targeted marketing that we may find helpful, right? I mean, so if you're a dog walker and there's someone's targeting you with a pretty cool leash, then, you know, that might help you out. So I guess there's, it's not completely uh, one-sided. Yeah, well, I think this is the challenge is Google and all these companies argue about look at the utility we're providing you. And if we were, if we couldn't, if we didn't sell you advertising, then you would have to pay for it. And actually, when the whole Facebook thing happened last year, where all that blew up, Sheryl Sandberg came came on, I think, the Today Show, and said, "Look, 
if you don't want us to you know collect your data then you're going to have to pay for facebook mm -hmm. right and so and i think eventually that's a lot of what these companies are going to say is look if we don't provide you with all this stuff for free then we're going to have to charge you mm -hmm. now they don't want to charge you because then their user base goes down right and so this is this is a model that's working for them but that's implicitly the threat that they're, you know, is we're gonna have to charge for this. And like, think about all the people who have free Gmail accounts out there. They've paid nothing for them all of these years, mm -hmm. right? And so there is a utility to all of that, uh, you know? So it's, it's hard to sort of balance, you know, where does the utility end and what people are willing to pay for kind of thing. Is there anything, I remember back, I don't know when this was, this may have been the same interview, but there was, where there was, it was all about privacy settings and you could go into Facebook, you could go into whatever, Instagram or Amazon and turn off certain things so they weren't tracking certain things. I mean, is there anything on the Google side that allows people to protect their privacy kind of more than what would be offered for free? No, I mean, all these platforms have these quote, you know, opt out opt-out things and opt-out provisions and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I was just reading an article this morning where a lot of the things that you quote opt out of, you, you don't technically opt out of. And I can send it to you. It was a CNET article from the end of this year. Put it on the blog post, yeah. People are interested. And, and again, it's part of the game of like, a, you know, they want your attention. They want to monetize your attention. And so as long as they can keep you on their platforms, whether it's Facebook, Google, Netflix, you know, Apple even, you know, they're going to monetize you. So they need to say and do all the right things to the regulators like, hey, you know, we, we let people opt out. We, you know, but they don't make it easy to opt out. And guess what? If you want the newest version, the newest version of the app or the newest version of this or newest version of that, you probably have to sign up for the newest version of their privacy policies. Now, I'm not a privacy lawyer and I'm not sure what's what's plausible and what, all that kind of stuff. But just as a, someone who's cynical and been on this side of the fence for a long time, it's like all these opt out opt out provisions are basically, you know, throwing red meat to the regulators, but they don't really want you to opt out, yeah. you know, because if, if they truly made a, a way for you, everyone to opt out, then their people would opt out. But then, you know, the question is, you know, are you going to stop? Like you now have Gmail for free. Like, are you then, are you going to, then you're going to go sign up for another free email service. Well, they're going to have their own privacy protection, you know, or privacy policy. So it's not like you're running to some, you know, some land where it's free of free of all of these things. So, so that's just the world we live in. I still have my Hotmail account, by the way. Is that still is that still viable? I have. I still have my Yahoo account, which I was told at work that made me very very uncool and that I needed to get rid of it like by tomorrow. So, uh, <laughs> but I have it for all my junk. Yeah, so, uh, it's hard to let go of. Yeah. So, so what are some of the things that I mean that that the Googles of the world are working on, we've talked about artificial intelligence, at least offline. What are the things that, that are kind of coming that uh, that folks might be starting to hear about on the Google side of things? Well, I think the one thing to realize about Google and some of these other companies is, you know, in the days when we grew up and even, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, innovation happened at places like MIT and innovation happened at the National Science Foundation, you know, because the government's, sort of had the money and the resources to put a lot of dollars behind things that, you know, took us into the next century, basically. Uh, that is not the case now. These companies are making so much money that they are funding their own innovation labs. And, and some of these things have nothing to do with, with, you know, monetizing audiences and what they do. And I think a couple of weeks ago, Google uh, announced this, this 
quantum leap in what's known as supercomputing. And so they basically, and this is something I believe Einstein even thought about way back when, and they're basically trying to process data faster. Uh, and, and I don't know how much of it is true because they just released this one journal article and it still needs to be proven and the science behind it needs to be verified. But basically what they said in that journal article is they, they can basically do something in 200 seconds, which the fastest computer it would take them, the uh, fastest current computer would take 10,000 years to solve. So yeah, it's unbelievable. To even they're, they're working on this whole idea of supercomputing uh, and, you know, like things that the National Science Foundation would have, would have you know, dealt with 20 years ago. Now, Google, because Google is also, all these companies, by the way, their market power allows them to attract the best and brightest employees from all around the world as well, right? And so they have this ability to come up with innovation and drive innovation that not a lot of, not only not a lot of their competitors have, but other just companies in the space don't have uh, kind of thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure supercomputing or, you know, folks at Intel are working on it and everyone's trying to crack the code on it. But those are the kinds of things that, you know, Google is working on. And then, you know, if you're a small business owner, you probably have dealt with the Google suite, which is, you know, allows you to have business email and Google analytics and all of those kinds of things. Now they charge you for that, but, by the way, they give you a lot of benefit for that. As uh, you know, if, if you've looked at your Google Analytics profile as a small business owner, you get you get benchmarks on what other small businesses in your category is doing in terms of how much traffic they're getting and where they're getting it from. You know, as a small business owner, you never know what other folks are doing in your category that are at your level. So, you know, they, they're doing a lot of those kinds of things, you know. Uh, Google Maps, uh, which used to be Waze, uh, you know, it's it's now part of our everyday lives, right? You don't think about going somewhere without checking how long it's going to take. Uh, and But they're tracking all that data and, you know, obviously selling it to advertisers. And then if you, if you have kids that are in elementary school or, or junior high school and things, you know, there is a whole Chromebook revolution that Google is doing where they're giving away these very cheap computers uh, at school, which are, you know, which are great. It allows all these schools to have these machines, but think about that from a branding perspective. You know, my children who are now, I'm one in high school, one in junior high school, they all have, you know, Google accounts, you know, and, and Google mail accounts, and they know what Chromebooks are. They're familiar with the brand. So when they do become, when they do have to go purchase something, uh, which will, you know, be in four or five years or 10 years, whatever it is, they they are familiar with what Google delivers and the you know the excellence that it delivers. That's kind of like what Apple was doing, at least not what I thought they were doing around here. You know, ten years ago was every you know kid would have a Mac. Right. Now is, is Chromebook the new kind of Mac? At well, least? It's, it's a very low end computer. I think it costs something like ninety nine to a hundred dollars, wow. and it's great for schools because it's just basically your your you know your your Microsoft Word stuff and connection to the internet. Uh, kind of thing, but it allows it allows all these kids to have that connection, and obviously that connection to the internet is is gated, so they're not spending their time on, on things that are not related to to schoolwork. But at the same time, if you think about it from you know lower income communities or third world developing nations, you know it's easier for them to be able to go fund a hundred dollar Chromebook yeah. uh, per per person in the classroom than a thousand dollars, you know, sure. kind of thing. Is that what they're doing around here too? Do you know? I mean, they, all the kids have laptops starting in middle school. So yeah. starting in sixth grade, you get a laptop issued to you. Now they, you know, they bid it out, so they, you know, they get a, they'll get a different brand. Okay. You know, every couple of years, okay. based on, you know, who gave them the best bid. Okay. But it's the, you know, the same, same idea. Okay. So. 
I was telling John and Penny offline before the podcast started about an article I read this morning. I think Google is coming out with a checking account called Cash. Have you heard of that, Salish? Yeah, so that's that's the next one. You know, there's a couple new battlegrounds that are happening for all these companies. And by the way, these all these companies view each other as competitors because they're fundamentally monopolies in their own space. So they're paranoid about each other, you know? So what they're trying to do is get to the next battleground which the others won't get to. And that's why Amazon has created the virtual assistant because they want to try to win that because Amazon and Facebook failed miserably in mobile phones. Uh, and Facebook is trying to win the virtual reality world by buying this company called Oculus, you know, kind of thing. So one of the next battlegrounds coming down the line is this thing about, you know, cryptocurrency and who's going to win that battle. And, you know, uh, obviously Facebook has started a currency initiative, which hasn't gone well. A lot of people have opted out of it earlier, earlier in the month. And then now face and Google is starting this whole whole thing around cash and checking accounts and all that other kind of stuff because I think it's it's to the bigger issue of and this is this may be another podcast conversation, but it's a bigger issue of like, do we need governments to back our currency anymore? You know, uh, if 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 blockchain and cryptocurrency can do that, then why do we need the governments per se to back our currency? And that has all kinds of implications, you know. And so, uh, so I think all of these companies are wrestling with that in some way because it's the next battleground. And what they're paranoid about is not ceding any ground to any one of these other companies in the next battleground. I think these companies have changed so many things. They certainly have changed the media industry, you know, in so many ways. I mean, digital media is is huge now and i would imagine that so much of that is from these companies yeah i mean you look at what netflix has done to the movie business you know uh there's this famous quote by jeff bukes who used to run time warner 10 years ago to 2010 where he didn't take netflix seriously and he, com he compared them to the albanian army and now netflix is the monster in that business and, and studios are starting streaming channels like Disney just launched one, I think this, yeah. this week or last yesterday. week. <laughs> yesterday. And so, you know, no one was worried about Netflix in 2010. And then just in, in eight or nine short years, they dominate the movie business now because they know more about consumer preferences than all the studios do. And all the studios were in their silos and all these other kinds of things. It was hard for them to react quickly. And I think that's what a lot of a lot of companies are seeing in the Fortune 50 or Fortune 100 space is going, look, these companies can you know, there could be some small company out there that could disrupt all of us, you know, in a way that we haven't seen. There's fundamentally less studios now than there were 10 years ago. I think 10 years ago there were six and now there, I think there's four, you know? So, uh, and so it's, 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 it's a, this, owning the data has this ability to go, uh, gives you such advantages that it's, it's exponential in terms of your upside if you can do it right. It's not linear by any means. And a lot of the, a lot of the current companies that are out there, you know, if Disney's competing with Fox or Disney's competing with Universal, they're involved in a linear competition where someone like Netflix can come in and just outgrow all of them and have a direct relationship with the consumer. So. I remember, I don't know, Cecilia probably won't remember this time. She'll probably laugh at me for saying this, but I remember back in the heyday of Netflix when they actually mailed DVDs. Remember those big red mm -hmm. envelopes and the mailboxes were full of them? And I remember hearing about that's not even what they, that's not even their business. Their business is streaming all this over the internet and the DVDs will go away. And I remember thinking, that's crazy. That will never happen. And isn't it amazing? Right, but 
I, I think that speaks to the processing yeah. power, the computing power, all of that's yeah. gotten cheaper. We, you know, it's very cheap for us to have broadband connections now. You know, that wasn't the case 10 years ago, right? Kind of thing. Now we don't even think about it. And so all of those things becoming cheaper makes Netflix streaming, you know, uh, the default choice for all of these things. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's what I think all fan companies are worried about is where is that next innovation going to happen that could, you know, that could seriously disrupt our business model. Well, well, I mean, think about ahead. what the internet has brought basically, like, do you read a newspaper? Do you go to, I mean, do people look for a job by looking in the newspaper? Or I mean, like, yeah. they, they go to Google and they can, you know, type in whatever. It, 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 it has changed so many things like, well, and make things kind of obsolete. I have to say, though, living uh, a little bit outside of the city as I do, um, things have gotten a bit uh, retroactive. I mean, where where connections aren't as fast because this gets back to the where they're trying to get to what the next thing is. And I think maybe in the city you don't hear about this much, but rural broadband or this neural this network of of you know satellites around the world getting internet to places that don't have it today. I mean, there are still you know huge swaths of the state that don't have high speed internet who can't stream who can't you know do any of that stuff. So I think that's still a huge opportunity. And I'm sure that's the stuff that those folks are working on right now. Well, I mean, I, I remember this when I was at Disney, there's, you know, there was still 20% of the population that wanted nothing to do with cable television. And there still is today, yeah. you know, there's probably 20% of the population that wants nothing to do with broadband, yeah. you know, kind of thing, because of the cost, the expense, they don't see the utility in it kind of thing. So, uh, you know, I think that's, 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 there's always going to be that section. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you, you people are allowed to work from wherever they are in the world now because of all these tools and utilities and things like that. So it's, it's like, you know, the world world meant that you were sort of disconnected from everything else. And now these technologies help you to be connected no matter where you are. So let's, let's segue second, something that came up uh, that we didn't really talk much about is artificial intelligence. I know mm -hmm. a lot of folks listening have heard that, you know, term before, Obviously, we've all seen the Terminator movies, so we know what, what it really means and how the world will end. But uh, in, in today's world, you know, how are some of these companies, these fan companies, and maybe Google more specifically, kind of, how are they using artificial intelligence to make our world better or, or certainly make their pockets deeper? Well, I think the thing about artificial intelligence is it's been actually, the, the concept of it has been around since the 1940s, since the, the advent of the computer. And it's it's gone through sort of, you know, fits and starts. There was even an AI winter at one point, you know, where people were sort of down on it. And now it's become all the rage. And it's become all the rage because these companies leverage this kind of data in, in such a massive way. So basically, when I think of artificial intelligence, the, the quick line for me is what it really truly is, is the ability to do very complex math extraordinarily quickly. Mm -hmm. And when you and when people ask how quickly, and I'm, I, I would say in milliseconds, to to a point where you don't even understand, you don't even notice that that complex map is going on. And the best example I have of that is the Google search engine. Now that search engine has been around since 1998. And then when you search something, it delivers delivers you you know hundreds of thousands or millions of results within milliseconds. Uh, and it circumnavigates the internet in a very quick way. And in the beginning, it probably wasn't very good at doing what it's doing, but what happens is every time someone does a search and then they click on a result, Google, Google keeps track of that information. 
and so basically the search engine gets better on, on after learning from what we're clicking on and what we think are the best results. So, so in a way, the artificial intelligence is learning from itself. You don't need a human now to tell it like, hey, you know, here's some code, go do this. The, you know, there's been code programmed into where it's learning by itself what it should be serving us. And the more information, again, that they know about us, if they know what bands we're into, if they know which part of the country live, you know, if they know whether we're married or single, all of those kinds of things, you know, the computer is just doing all of those calculations in milliseconds and serving up results to us. And so, and then the thing about artificial intelligence is it needs a lot of data in order to be effective because it needs to continually learn. And that's where the, the Netflixes of the world and the Googles and the Facebooks of the world are, had a distinct advantage. They simply have far more data than anyone else. If I were to start a search engine company today, it would take me 20 years or longer to build the Google database because I need people using it. I need people searching from it, you know, uh, all that in, in order for it to get as good as Google is. And in that 20 years, Google's going to race even farther in front of me, right? So in effect, Google has no competition in the search engine business. There's, there's no new entrant that can come into it that can dislodge it, at least on that piece of, piece of the business. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, they've got total market share. I mean, you've got, you know, does Microsoft even have Bing anymore? And Yahoo's probably there, but there's, you know, Google has become ubiquitous, right? I mean, there's nothing else out there that comes close. No, it, it has seventy percent or more market share in search, and you know, it is a monopoly by all traditional standards. And that's that's another part of the challenge of all of these companies is the regulators can't get their heads around what these companies do, much less understand the market power that they have, you know? And so it, it's, and they're used to dealing with, you know, antitrust in terms of like sales. They're not used to dealing with, you know, what a term I read about recently, you know, it's called dataopolis. Like, you know, they, they basically have the data in this one sector and they control all that data and no one, it doesn't really matter what else other companies do, they will always win, you know? And how do you regulate a company like that? I mean, I think you had mentioned this in advance. I mean, they've got so much power and so much money that even, you know, a large, you know, fine or a violation is, is, is nothing to them. Yeah, I mean, you know, Google has over $100 billion cash on hand on their balance sheet. So it's cash investments, you know. The, and so the latest thing that they had was from the EU, which was a, which was a antitrust or a privacy policy uh, transgression. They, they spent all of, you know, I think two or three billion dollars, uh, which is nothing to their tangible bottom line. They're just paying it out of their, you know, their, their bank account. And, you know, for all the regulators, two to three billion dollars is a lot of, lot of money, you know, kind of thing. Uh, and even the regulators talk about when all these companies go through, go through, you know, uh, antitrust review when they're buying other companies, they always say like, look, we're not going to, we're not going to reveal people's privacy. We're not going to get their privacy and all this other kind of stuff. Just like in the old days when they used to say, look, we're not going to raise prices if we buy this other company. And then they go raise prices anyway, right, kind of thing. And here, now, when they have to go through regulatory approval, it's like, oh, we're not going to violate privacy and all, you know, all these other things. And they do anyway, and they just get fined for it later. But those fines, because they have so much money, I believe Apple has $40 billion of cash on hand on the bank, right, in the bank. So it's like... The money that you know that they pay out doesn't really affect their stock price for that quarter. So it, it, you know there, there's no you know there's nothing can dissuade them from continuing to do what they do. 
So where do we go from here? I mean, how do you regulate a business where, where monetary penalties don't don't hurt it? And frankly, regulators probably don't understand it enough to properly regulate it. So, you know, what does the next I, five to ten years look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the regulators, I, I, it's not that all regulators are behind. I think it's just that the innovation is happening so quickly. Uh, and I think, you know, and, I, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time in the privacy law space or anything, but just from my reading of it, I think there, there, there are sort of, there is more hand-wringing within the regulators about letting Facebook buy Instagram and WhatsApp. You know, I think three or, three or four out of the five top social networks are now owned by one company, and Zuckerberg has this special class of shares to where he can't, you know, he has voting rights, basically. So there is no one that can fire Mark Zuckerberg, and he, in effect, is our, our biggest censor in the whole world. He decides what we see and what we don't see, right? And so I think, you know, where it makes sense in the future, you know, to try to try to unwind those things, they'll try to do that. And I think Elizabeth Warren is talking about, in her campaign, talking about breaking up Facebook. But if you come to Google, what do you break up exactly? Right. You know, there's nothing to break up, per se, that's as clean as breaking up an Instagram from a Facebook. Uh, so... I think I, I, I think the challenge is, you know, for governments as well, you almost need a lot of these companies to be American and based in the US. That helps our intelligence community, right? Kind of thing. Uh, there's there's a new social network now that all the kids are using called TikTok, which is based in China. Uh, and you know, the Chinese government has a lot of say as to what kind of content that goes on that. And so and I think there's been there's been some stuff in the mainstream press in the last couple of weeks about, you know, the, the, the American governments are, are hesitant about having a, a social network that's based in China be so popular, at least with, with the U.S. audience. Sure. So there's all kinds of issues as to like, you know, not only who has the data, but then which government has access to it if they need it to, to deal with whatever government, you know, government priorities they have. So. Yeah, it's an excellent point. And, you know, in case folks hadn't checked, anyone, all those FANG companies are all based here. I mean, they've got obviously nodes all over the world, but they're all based right out there where you live. That's a good thing. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, I think, look, I, the way I look at Google is Google could be a lot more evil if they wanted to be. Right. Uh, part of their model is like, we want to try to help you and we want to work in the background to help you. And then we're going to make money from you. Facebook to me is the one that sort of has a very different model where they need you and I to be on Facebook with each other all the time. Yeah. So they need to know as much about me and you, John, as possible. And they're, they're going to try to get us to connect. So because they're a social network, they need people to be on their social networks. And they've been, you know, uh, no matter what they did with the election in 2016 and all that kind of stuff, you know, their, their transgressions to me are far higher higher level of magnitude than what google is doing mm -hmm. but it doesn't prevent from google do, doing all those other things it's just that they have a different mission yeah and i've heard you know that the death of facebook has been you know it seems like every year you know you talk about well it's, everybody's leaving facebook the young kids are and then it's the, you know i mean but they're still around um but to your point they have to keep people engaged to, to make that a viable business well i mean if you think about it and this you know for the folks who are not you know it, when they bought Instagram for a billion dollars, and this was only four or five years ago, Instagram had all of 13 employees, you know, and they 13? sold a business for a billion dollars, you know, and, but it, and very few people at the thought, time thought that, that was a really valuable acquisition. And Gary Vaynerchuk, heard of him, you know, said at the time that Facebook stole Instagram because he saw the value of 
you know, having a social network that was geared towards a younger audience and, and bolting that into the Facebook organization. And now it's worth far more than that billion dollars. But what it's allowed Facebook to be is relevant among a younger generation. It's like, yeah, you know, my son was in junior high school and I quiz him about this, or now he's in high school, quiz about this all the time on which social network to use, you know, and they all use Instagram. And it's it's not so much that they're posting about what they're doing, it's just their instant messaging now. That's how they're connected with each other. You know, and they're they're and some of them are using TikTok now, but basically there's always gonna be a new social social networking app, you know, because you never wanna use your parents' social networking app. It's no it's not cool. So you always want to you know, gravitate to the next new thing, but you still do need a network effect. You still need uh, a social network where all your friends are or it's, or it's not very useful. To you. So. so Cecilia, what do you use? AOL? Like what, what, <laughs> what's the current thing out there on the East Coast? Social media wise yeah. or chat wise? I mean, I, Instagram definitely I think is amongst the people in my age. Snapchat is kind of falling off a little bit. Uh, Marco Polo is kind of like a video relay. It's almost like leaving a video voicemail for the other person, and then they oh, get no, back to you, and they can get back. Um, Facebook is still very much a thing. WhatsApp. Okay. As opposed to the ones that come with, the, like, if you're an Apple phone person, I mean, you've got FaceTime and you've got iMessage. Mm-hmm. Are people using more of the third-party type uh, apps? I do. That, okay. I do. I, I rarely use my iPhone As opposed apps. to the native I'm, app. Yeah, I'm usually downloading a separate app that probably has a little bit more capability or can add more people and whatnot. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's also regional. When I travel and see my relatives in, in the UK and India and stuff, they're all like, why aren't you on WhatsApp? Yeah. And I'm like, it's just instant messenger, right? Like, what's the big deal? They're all on WhatsApp, you know, and they're all on Android phones, uh, you know, kind of thing. So it, there is sort of a difference of the world. And, you know, we, we sort of live in a very sort of Apple FaceTime, you know, bubble yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Whereas, uh, the, you know, not everyone, you know, it, the, the disposable income needed for Apple products, you, you can see more in sort of other parts of the world where the, people don't want to spend that premium for an Apple product. Yeah. Well, so we're running out of time here, but Salish, I want to give you kind of the last words. If there's something that we haven't covered that you want to make sure our listeners get us a survey of FANG 101, and maybe there are some things to tee up for another podcast, but what are some of the things people should take away from this particular discussion? Well, I, I, I think the first thing, and look, I've been in digital marketing now 15 years, and every year there's like the world is coming to an end, advertisers know way too much about you, and we're going to revolt. Well, the question is, why hasn't there been a revolt, right? So I think the first piece of advice I would have is like, really think about the utility you've got from all these free things. Like now in in my smart car, I can make hands-free phone calls and I can even send hands-free texts through through my car. And, you know, for all of us in Los Angeles who have these massive commutes, I can now, you know, take you know, take phone calls or make phone calls, you know, without taking my hands off the steering wheel. And it's opened up all this extra time for me to do all of those things. And But think about what I've paid. I've paid absolutely nothing incrementally for that privilege. You know, I didn't have to pay for an extra data plan. I didn't have to pay anything extra on my car payment. But it's now allowed me two hours a day where I can talk on the phone or listen to music or do whatever. My music, not what the radio is providing you know, kind of thing. So there are great utilities to all of these things that we don't actually realize, yeah. you know, so, so, and then, you know, giving up our data is not necessarily a new thing. If you think about the FICO score for all of us who, you know, own a house or gotten a car, 
you know, if you know what FICO does is basically they take all your information, they give you a score, but they sell that information to all these loan companies who want to give you loans, right? How is that different? And they've been around 30 or 40 years. How is, you know, what FICO is doing different than what Google has been doing, right? So this whole thing about like, I'm going to give away my data and they're going to know everything about me. Well, there's a trade for that. And you have to understand that, you know, what you're trying to get in that trade. And a lot of it is convenient things that you take for granted. Like your Gmail is free. You know, uh, you have personal email wherever you go in the world. You don't have to pay a dime for that. You know, and that's a big deal, right? You don't necessarily want to have every conversation you need to have on your on your employer servers that that are owned by your employer, right? So there's there's all kinds of things that that come with that, you know. I think that's a good productive and reassuring way to end it, uh, Salish, Salish Pasel. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, it was fun. I think we may uh, we may have the. Uh, Patel brothers on for yet another podcast at some point. Uh, uh, maybe we can hear a little bit more about uh, Scale for Good. Uh, I think a lot of the folks that listen are definitely interested in uh, doing good in the world, and they'll be interested to find out how you apply some of these really uh, technical tools and put things to work for good instead of uh, evil. <laughs> I didn't want to say evil because doesn't like as we found out, it's not necessarily evil, but there are better uses of these tools. Uh, there's some really great causes out there. So best of luck with that, Salish and. Thanks for your time, and thanks for all you've done to help us uh, over the years. Thanks. It was fun, guys. Awesome. For all those of you who are still listening, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcast. Check us out on Twitter Instagram at EvoFiPodcast. We'll have a blog post up uh, here in the next few days, and um, we'll put a link to the article uh, Salish mentioned as well as a financial article that I just came across on the FANG um, investments over the past 10 years compared to um, markets overall. There's an interesting read there. So anyway, thanks very much. We'll talk to you all very soon. Bye now. Thank you very much, Mr. Obama.